Witch Roll Podcast. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton, birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on 
everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. All right, let's do it. Another edition of Roll On, Adam Skolnick and myself back in the house. Enjoy. Greetings, Internet. It is I, Rich Roll, your friendly podcast host, back for another edition of Roll On alongside my hype man, my co-host, Adam Skolnick, environmentalist, journalist at large, author, writer, David Goggins, Can't Hurt Me, co-author, all kinds of things. Good to see you, my friend. Baby diaper changer. That's right. A lot of that these days. <laughs> a lot of diaper changing. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I've been hearing from the Rich Roll fan base about my diaper choices. There has been some chatter. There's been some chatter about <laughs> yeah. my my piss poor diaper choices. I want to say this. Thank you for the messages. They're always very kind. And uh, I'll just, I just wanted to, to address it straight off the bat. I live in an apartment and we have a laundry room that is communal. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, I'm I'm not prepared to put soiled cloth diapers in the communal wash. But I hear you. I want to be. I want to be that brazen, or at least moving if to a place with my own laundry. You would figure out a workaround. Oh right. <laughs> well, no. I think we, we are going to look into a service. Okay. Is the, is the long? All right. We'll just version. leave it there. Uh, <laughs> Uh, For those that are new to this special edition format of the podcast, we typically canvas a couple news stories, things of interest. We call it the big story. Mm -hmm. We have a teachable moment. We do some show and tell. And after a break, we do some listener questions. Uh, If you'd like your question addressed and answered, you can leave it on our Facebook group or preferably leave us a voicemail at 424-235-4626. And we thank you. What have you been up to lately? Well, last week, I was working on a story for Outside Magazine, kind of about this moment, this political moment, and adventure athletes and how they're handling it. So it's kind of like how the NBA players and NFL players, Major League Baseball players were dealing with uh, Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. voter suppression and police brutality in a very public way, which was kind of, for some athletes, it was a new setting, new forum for them. Others had been doing it. But adventure athletes have been kind of also doing that in their own way on social media. So this is about a group of adventure athletes who were kind of brought together to work on a voter campaign, get out the vote campaign in the name of public lands preservation and climate change policy. Mm. And what's unique about it, it's not just a, hey, these are problems. It's a, an attempt to take back patriotism from the right. Because for a long time since... Vietnam War and the protesters are burning the flag, the left has kind of left the flag alone. Even though some of the greatest uh, advancements in America have been the civil rights movement, where you know Martin Luther King, John Lewis, many others kind of used the Constitution to embarrass and destroy Southern segregationists. And you know Barack Obama obviously mines American history and philosophy uh, to great effect and obviously to, to the presidency. 
But for the most part, you know, especially now, you don't see the kind of hugging the flag. Right. You know, that's just not happening. Yeah, the flag has sort of been co-opted by the right as a symbol of, you know, a political point of view as yeah. opposed to this thing that should be uniting us all. Right. And, you and you know, we were just talking to Blake here, who's uh, operating the cameras and, and audio here. And he was talking about in Simi Valley, you know, these convoys with big Trump flags and big American flags in the back of the trucks kind of rolling through town. And that has happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin and in Portland, Oregon, and has caused skirmishes and problems. And those people are linked to far right organizations, including some white supremacist organizations, people who are doing that. And so, you know, it is dangerous in 2020. Can you embrace the flag? So Tommy Caldwell, legendary climber, you've seen him in Don sure. Wall, you've seen him in uh, Free Solo. Um, he uh, is was one of those athletes wrestling with, is it all right to embrace the flag? And so I spoke with him. I spoke with Claire Gallagher, who won Western States 100 last year. Um, I spoke with a number of athletes, um, Connor Ryan, a Lakota skier, and talked about these issues. And, you know, because really at the crux of it is this tension that we all feel, especially people who get out in nature, run on trails, swim in the ocean, whatever, surf, whatever your sport is, Adventure athletes, people who are enthusiasts of adventure sports, we care about the lamb because we love it. You know, mm -hmm. like it fuels us in a level beyond athletics. It fuels us in, in a soul way. So, is it possible to love our country when we love the places that are our country? You know, of course it, it is. Right, right, right. Of so, course it is. But there's this bizarre perversion. Like if I was to hang an American flag like out in front of my house, people right. would make an assumption about what my political perspective is. So that's what it starts with. So on uh, September eighth. Tommy posted on Instagram and you can see it. And I'm not sure when our story will drop, but in that post, he's like, I just bought a house and, I, and it had a big American flag and I took it down. And I understand that because I would also take it down because of the assumption, but also because I'm just not that into the flags. You know, like I'm not mm -hmm. into the American flag. I'm just not that into the whole rah, rah, rah. You know, we're Gen X, man. <laughs> Coming right. up as Gen X. Yeah, we're supposed it was to lucky, be it was blase kooky. and detached. <laughs> it was kooky to yeah. be rah, rah. <laughs> so there's also that. But, um, but now what I think is so interesting, Jeremy Jones, I spoke with him. He's the head of uh, Protect Our Winters. He's a, a famous backcountry snowboarder, uh, which is a punk rock guy in his own right. Mm. And he is the one who started this organization basically all about, we have to protect our winters if we want to protect our sport. And, and obviously to protect human life on earth, which we'll get into in a little bit. And preserve the natural land and resources that provide the backdrop, the landscape for exactly. us to, you know, enjoy those sports. So he he did some. He and Protect Our Winters did some market research and found out there's 50 million Americans who uh, do adventure sports, and they're all outside. and And he calls it the outdoor state. And so he put together these athletes as an attempt to let's take back. Let's we we're the people that love our land. Let's show people that we love our country. So Jimmy Chin. Happy birthday, Jimmy. It's his birthday today. Happy birthday. He narrates this great video. And so that was kind of the departure point of the story, but it was also kind of inward looking of, of this tension of, mm. you, know, you know, what does it feel like to love the land in this moment? What's it feel like to try to, is it, is it the right time to embrace the flag? Does it work? Mm. That kind of stuff. So I don't know. I hope the story works. Um, you know, it's one of those things you do your very best. You talk to a lot of people and you hope it drops and, and it lands right. 
Uh, it never lands exactly as you'd imagine, but um, you hope it lands. For right. outside though. Yeah, for outside. For outside. Yeah. That's going to come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like insecure. Is it, are they going to publish this? <laughs> no. I mean, <laughs> you know, we were talking earlier on the phone. It's like, you know, you get scarred as independent journalists coming up when you have stories killed and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so part of me, until I've heard and I've gotten my notes and I know the plan, I always keep... I always like. Yeah, do you feel for like you're worst. jinxing it by yeah. talking about it <laughs> yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be fine. It is a weird thing, though. Uh, yeah. A very interesting thing. Like, I love America. I love our country. Mm. I love the freedom that I have, and you know, the liberty that I have to pursue the things that I love. I love yeah. being out in nature and you know, exploring and everything that's great about this country. And how do you reconcile that with not being? nationalistic in a jingoistic kind of way. You know, right. they're two different relationships, but we have to find our way back to some place of unity where we can celebrate our collective humanity and this place that we all share as a home. Yeah, and I don't say that explicitly, but that's the point is, is, is unity is, is where we need to get to. It's hard in this climate for a lot of reasons because mostly people are getting screamed at from the, the polls, not right. from the center. We don't have a uniter, we have a divider. Uh, Barack Obama was very much an attempt at a uniter. Unfortunately, there were a lot of people who just weren't gonna listen to him. So this is an attempt for environmentalists, kind of this new era, this new wave of environmentalists who are trying to take back the flag and say, listen, if you love this country like you say you do, you better love the land because that's what the country mm-hmm. is. So right. it's like that aspect. And then of course, from an indigenous perspective, it's, it, it's Indigenous Peoples Day today. I spoke to a couple native athletes and they had some really interesting takes on things and, and from their cultural perspective. And I really valued that too. What's also interesting is that environmental preservation was originally the purview of the Republican party. Right, well, just like they were the um, abolitionists too. Mm-hmm. You know, Lincoln was a Republican. Mm-hmm. So it, it all it all flipped somewhere along the line. Somewhere along the line. I know. I know. So it all flipped. But, um, you know, in, environmentalism, is it shouldn't be seen as a party issue. It, it, it really is. It's one of those issues like healthcare, like gun control, that the reason it's, it's skewed the way it is along party lines tends to be around corporate contributions to the political right, process. Right, and that gets conflated with jobs. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But those are argu- arguments. Cool. Yeah. So we have that to look forward to. Yeah. Coming to outside mm. online at some point soon, yeah, man. Yeah, exactly. Thanks. Meanwhile, I'm getting ready. It's a heavy week this week. I've got three podcast interviews and I did two over the last couple of days. So I'm kind of ramping up yeah, my, my schedule. The shark man. Uh, Michael Muller just yeah. went up. That's yeah. great. Can't wait Such to a good that. one, man. Yeah, you got to check it out. And yeah. he was kind enough to provide some footage of him swimming with sharks. Oh, some of that footage I think is from his VR experience and we were able to edit and weave that into the YouTube version of the podcast. So oh. people should definitely check that out and you can get a taste of like where he's coming from. Like Maybe. he's such a, an incredible character. It's a super fun one. <laughs> incredible. And you have his book, right? I do. You've never met him though, have you? I haven't met him. I, I you know... Tashin, who does these great art books and photography books, um, you remember they had a pop-up store like on Beverly or something like that yeah. for a while. And uh-huh. I used to go, whenever they put up a new exhibit, I'd go in there. They had a great Hockney exhibit once. And then I was in there for some exhibit. And then I looked in the back, I'd missed the shark one. They might've done a book with him, but maybe not a big exhibit. I can't remember, but I saw that shark book in the back and I bought it, you know? You uh, yeah. yeah, it's so good. It's an incredible book. Yeah. Um, 
I got Matthew McConaughey coming on the podcast tomorrow <sighs> via Zoom. All right, all right, all right. Obviously, I would have preferred to do it in person, but we're in a pandemic and I'm going to take what I can get when yeah. it comes to Wooderson. <laughs> so got, I'm looking forward to that. Trying to wrap him. my head around like what it is that I want to talk to him about and and ask him. Um, you know, typically I have people on the podcast who, you know, clearly are not as well known as someone like him. Right. And the trick is like, how do you approach an individual like that who's so well known and try to get something unique and interesting out of them that, um, you know, is not Googleable. Right. Well, it's interesting about him is well, you're gonna talk to him about his book, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the occasion for this. He's got this book, Green Lights, coming out. Mm-hmm. I got an early copy of it. It's an incredible book. He's an unbelievable writer. That's it's awesome. so well considered and thoughtful and interesting. And I mean, he's Fun. a very compelling figure. Yeah. And I mean, how often do you see an A-list actor trying to give you life advice in a way that's not kind of talking down to? Right. Yeah. We talked about this on an earlier edition of this podcast, right? The yeah. advent of the actor become <laughs> like lifestyle guru. Well, you got but it, with you got him, Will Smith, Kevin Hart. Right, but with yeah. him, it's different. Like there's, because of his kind of hangdog, laconic, laid back vibe, mm. it doesn't feel um, calculated right. in the way that it might with somebody else who's making like a bold move into social media. Like it's all very natural and organic, I think. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think it's genuine. And I think it began when he started stepping out and doing, you know, keynotes and college graduation speeches and people cottoned on to like the wisdom, you know, right. he was able to impart He's kind of like a, a Zen way. figure. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I'm looking forward to it. Yes, it's amazing. I mean, you'll get into it with him, but the origins, but I read a little bit about like his journals were this wellspring for this book, right? It's, right. A, very, it's a very organic process. He's been journaling for like 32 years. Yeah. And he decided during the, I think in the early phases of the pandemic, like now's the time to do something with this. Mm. And he went off to the desert for 52 days and huddled up somewhere without electricity and just banged this thing out. Amazing. So, <laughs> Wait, on know. what, a na- typewriter? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no electricity? Yeah I know. I know. yeah, I don't know how that worked. Um, more will be revealed. Yes. All right, well, there's, what are we a, gonna... there's, a, there's a whole section you can talk to him about. Yeah. Uh, what are we talking about today? What's the first thing we wanna get into? Well, you, we, we were, you sent me this morning this um, Glenn Greenwald animal agriculture story um, the Intercept did about uh, new documents revealing how animal agriculture, the industry is surveilling and punishing its critics. Right, so Glenn Greenwald did some investigative journalism, came out with this article on The Intercept as well as a, a video interview. It's called New Documents Reveal How the Animal Agriculture Industry Surveils and Punishes Critics. Mm. Glenn Greenwald is a polarizing figure, I, I know that well. But one thing he's always been on top of is holding the animal agriculture industry to account for some of its sins. And that's essentially what he's doing here. And, yep. and, and basically what he did was he got all these documents by virtue of a freedom of information request. And it revealed the extent to which this industry really is surveilling and also retaliating against industry critics and animal rights activists. And in the crosshairs of this particular controversy is this veterinarian in the Bay Area. Her name is Dr. Crystal Heath, who basically practices shelter medicine. She's affiliated with the Berkeley Humane Society and has been somewhat outspoken against certain practices that the industry has been 
engaged in over the course of the pandemic to reduce particularly pig populations. Mm. Like they're doing this horrible thing where uh, it's called, what is it called? It's called- Ventilation um, shutdown. Yeah, ventilation ventilation shutdown, where essentially they, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they kind of turn the air conditioner off and they let these animals die a slow, painful death. Which yeah, is shut the windows down. In order to depopulate, you know, uh, the you know, in the in the face of like the pandemic yeah. and declining demand. And yeah. as a result of that, they're monitoring her social media. They're engaged in these retaliatory Facebook campaigns to make her look like a crazy person. And this is all very concerning, but I think a glimpse or a window into the extent to which this industry is willing to go to protect its market share and marginalize anybody who speaks out against it. It's sort of another layer of what we see with you know the laws that prevent uh, any kind of investigative journalism to transpire whatsoever, the ag-gag laws. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing new, really. I mean, uh, the ag-gag laws have been around for a while. Um, I was harassed. I did a story on CAFOs for Sierra Magazine in East North Carolina, which we've talked about. And uh, we were kind of, I was with Waterkeeper and we were um, kind of driving around the perimeter of some of these CAFO operations and checking them out, looking at the, you know, the lagoons and their pig operations. Mm -hmm. And um, all of a sudden we got, you know, harassed, like farmers came out with two trucks and started tailing us and through the these narrow roads in North Carolina. I mean, it was it was crazy. It was like they were on our tailgate yeah. and harassing. Because, you know, Waterkeeper ha- comes around and monitors their stuff. And so this is nothing new, you know, to be fair, animal rights activists have been infiltrating farm operations for a long time and taking these pictures and publicizing this stuff. This is not new. At some point, ag-gag laws came as a way to discourage that. And so they could criminally prosecute uh, people who did that, which seems like a violation of free speech mm-hmm. um, and is a violation of free speech, but that has happened. But now on the other end, you have people like Crystal Heath who are being harassed and she seems to be strong. He mentions she's, she's strong and she's got her career to a place where it's not going to impact her, but it could. Someone had put images of the ventilation shut down and that's how the FOIA request and they started mm-hmm. prosecuting those people. So on the one hand, people are getting prosecuted and the Department of Agriculture is involved in that. On the other hand, um, the these far- farmers and industry types are able to like unleash holy hell on people like Dr. Heath and it's fair play. So yeah, I yeah. think the the distinguishing factor here is the weaponization of social media to perpetrate what are essentially like ad hominem attacks on these individuals. Yeah. yeah, it's one thing to prosecute them, and we could talk about that. It's another thing to do you know a character assassination yes. funded by you know a lobbying group that is shrouding those social media campaigns behind anonymous accounts, et cetera, Mm -hmm. to try to create viral moments that make people look bad for basically speaking up against something that is wrong and should be addressed. Right. You know, you're like, you're you're tagged as an elitist because you think torturing pigs is wrong. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, like that's basically what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. Like people like her, you know, you're an elitist and you're, and worse, I think they were, there was some misinformation about her that 
got into kind of fellow veterinarians were shouting her down or something like that saying, you know. Right, well, that's where the confusion comes in because if these attack campaigns, you know, are are cast in a certain light, even a a well-meaning or intelligent, you know, colleague isn't gonna understand the context of what's actually going on. Yeah. Which is a broader issue addressed in the social dilemma about how, how social media is used for nefarious purposes. It's true. I, I would just, uh, not to criticize Intercept, I think Intercept does some really good stories, but they don't, um, they're not, they don't even pretend to be even handed. And I'm not suggesting you should be even handed, but there's like words like torture and things in, in his story, which you wouldn't really write if you were writing it for say the New York Times. Um, right, but he's the, not, he makes no bones no, about no. his perspective on this. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's that guy that likes to kind of be the, pot stir, which Mm -hmm. is fine. But sometimes I have a problem with left-wing journalists doing that because you have a winning argument. And when you add that extra spice, you overplay a hand and it doesn't help you. Like, listen, for us to solve some of these bigger problems, sometimes less is more because you, you don't have to outrage and inflame. You can also just present a winning argument. And sometimes that's more effective. And mm-hmm. when, you, when you say things like torture, you're implying motive, like these farmers love torturing their animals. They probably don't look at it that way. Yeah. And so in that case, and I, I'm not making excuses for terrible practices. I'm against CAFOs and all of that. But you know, as soon as you start using words like that, you are othering this whole group of people that you actually need to change this problem, solve this problem. Yeah, that was something that I spoke to Leah Garces about who yeah. who runs Mercy for Animals, like finding a way to communicate with the people that you perceive as your adversary so that you can work together for change. And there's a, there's a very bold and strong argument for that. And she's made a lot of progress doing just that. But I think activism takes many forms. Yes. And you need the Leia Garcises, but you also need the Glenn Greenwalds. Like he's sounding a certain alarm and he's gonna write it up in a way that the New York Times is not going to, but maybe the New York Times picks up the story and does their version of it. Maybe. So I think everybody has their place. And I don't think anybody goes to the intercept thinking that they're getting an objective perspective on anything. They're getting Glenn Greenwalds perspective or his staff's perspective on I don't know, man. these issues. I think I think you're you know that, but I think mm-hmm. when when this stuff is distributed along Twitter and Facebook and it just is it's flattened. That landscape is flattened and, and now it's all just news stories and it could be like, you know, you open yourself up to if you're sensationalistic you do open yourself up to arguments of fake news. Right, you're also, you're, you're paving the ground for the counterattack. That's right. Basically, right. right. Um, well, everybody check that out in the meantime. I yeah, mean, for sure. Listen, it's worth you reading. Know, reading. Ventilation shutdown, they call it VSD uh, to depopulate pigs. Just, it sounds Ugh. horrific. I can't believe that this is legal. And not and only this that, is the first that I've heard of it. Well, CAFOs, all CAFOs have kill boxes. And on bad days, you can drive by, like if there's a virus that comes through a CAFO, they'll kill all the piglets. And then they'll be stuffed in these kill boxes out front, like it's a mailbox. So horrible. It's horrible. What was the reporting that you were doing on CAFOs? What was that about specifically? It was kind of a two-tiered. It was about um, how these CAFOs, how this one part of North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina turned into the CAFO hotspot where uh, China is outsourcing its pork production through Smithfield, mm-hmm. and, which is the big slaughterhouse and how these CAFO operations don't really benefit the farmer. But not only that, 
they sp- there's no sewage treatment and they spray the, right. the fields with the poop and they put it in lagoons. And then when it's during rains, those lagoons flood and destroy rivers and basically the ocean. And even when there's not rain, when they're just spraying these fields, the people that live around there, largely black, largely low income, get their houses sprayed with shit. Yeah. And they can't even go outside even on hot summer days. Yeah. And so I would talk to people in that, in that. Mm. Community. Yeah, it becomes aerosolized and yeah. you're breathing it wherever you go. And these farms tend to be in lower income areas That's right. where uh, you know there's a minor there's minority populations yep. and populations of color that are economically deprived and these people get sick. Yep. And so mostly a- black residents that get sick, and then the people working in the slaughterhouses are mostly immigrants and migrant workers from Central America, and then the farmers the people that own the CAFO operations tend to be white um, and kind of the, the people that have been there for years running these farming operations, but um, they switch switch to CAFO. And the difference is they don't own the pigs. They're just paid to raise them for the three to six months it takes mm-hmm. to raise a, a pig. And if they lose a pig, that counts against them. And so they don't actually get the big payout of the slaughter of the pig. They get basically room and board payments. Right. And it becomes very tight margins for them. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I mean, they essentially become almost indentured servants. Yeah, yeah, indentured yeah. servants that are, ser- they're servicing debt. Yeah, you know, and most they're, of them. And they're not really in control of their destiny and they're suffering as well. And the state laws farmers. were basically hollowed out by a guy who was like the king of pig. You know, he was like the, he, mm. he became industry muscle man. And um, and he passed these laws that basically made it legal to not treat this raw sewage. And there's a lot more pigs than people in this area, so it's like right. you know the humans have their their sewage treated, but not the pigs. Yeah, this was explored in the documentary "What the Health," yeah. and also in the upcoming documentary "They're They're Trying to Kill Us." So okay. that John Lewis is behind, who's been on the show. It's just, you know, if you think about it, like they're just, they're literally spraying refuse into the air and you're breathing it. And he has interviews with people and they're in their house and they're like, our whole house smells like all the time. Yeah. You know, you can't get it out. And it's obviously it's in their lungs. Yep. Yep. (sighs) Can't have cookouts, can't have, can't go outside in hot summer days. It's horrible. These are happening. This stuff's happening, you know, every day. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're driving by on the road, you're none the wiser because it's all underneath these you know hooded what these essentially kind of massive look like, huts they look like greenhouses yeah. they're just massive warehouses yeah big warehouses and and the, they the the food comes in one slot and the poop goes out the other and and these animals live very short you know i think it's only like 3 months or something for yeah. the pig to get to wait yeah We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com. 
who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful. And recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. All right, let's switch gears. Yes. That's, uh, because it's, this, it's kind of the same gear, though. It, it is, it yeah. is. This podcast is sort of becoming a documentary review podcast. <laughs> two thumbs like up. Every two weeks, we've got to find a new documentary to talk about, but we haven't had any problems because there's been so many amazing ones lately. Uh, and this week, it is David Attenborough's new documentary, A Life on Our Planet, mm -hmm. which we both watched the other day. It's on Netflix. What a brilliant, beautiful man this guy is. Amazing. What a life that he has lived. At 94 years old, in many ways, the original naturalist who's been documenting the earth's beauty and bounty and all these hidden natural environments for decades upon decades. And he creates this documentary that he calls his witness statement, mm -hmm. which I think is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that here he is at 94, nearing the end of his life. And it's almost like, here's what I want you to know about everything that I've learned about the planet um, from the beginning of my career to now, where we've gone awry and where we're headed if we don't course correct. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting how like our climate uh, consciousness or climate conscious conscience has conscience. gone from like Al Gore to Greta and David Attenborough. 
you know, like- From the youngest to the oldest. Yeah, it's, it's kind of cool in a way. It's sad in a way. Uh, I mean, he, you see him, I didn't, I didn't realize the kind of the breadth of his career because my interactions with David Attenborough is like through Blue Planet and Planet mm-hmm. Earth and all that. And his, you know, silky tones tend to put me to sleep, to be quite honest with you. They're that good. <laughs> and like- How is he not, has he been knighted? He has been knighted. He he's has, a, he's I would David. Okay, yeah. But he's been at this, what, since like the 50s? Going to like kind of going to, um, you know, New Guinea and Papua and places like that for, for you yeah, know, Yeah, maybe the, er, the early 50s. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's so striking about the documentary is he says he begins his career when air travel was brand new. That's right. And so he's one of the first people who's able to travel to these places and show people mm. what's actually going on in these hidden pockets of the world that were previously, you know, unexplored or never before seen by most people. I mean, he's hanging out with gorillas, like arm in arm yeah. with gorillas. I it's mean, very yeah. Jane Goodall, yeah, esque, you know, in that regard. And I love the parts where it, you, you know, you see him as a young man doing yeah. all of this stuff, and it just it makes your heart swell. And great photography gives the yeah the the cinematography and the sweeping landscapes mm. and and everything that kind of unfurls as you watch the documentary is very profound and moving. Um, but just the gravitas because of the life that he lived. He has this grandfatherly like energy, and he's able to now, you know, in the place that he's at in his life, look down on all of this, like literally look down on the planet from ten thousand feet. This ten thousand foot view of the problem, the history behind it, with a sense of scale and proportionality that is rare and is informed only because of everything that he's done prior to that. And it, it reminded me a little bit of you've all know Harari's books. Yep. The way that Yuval is able to put distance between himself and these things that we're too close to, to provide what seems like common sense perspective, but is ultimately articulated in a way that that allows it to land with the profundity that it deserves. Yeah, well, part of that is because he's studying at a distance, but you know what's cool about this is that Attenborough lived it. Right, you know, it's very mm-hmm. personal for him because mm-hmm. he's seen this and he's seen the bounty of biodiversity and wild biodiversity, which we got into last time. Mm-hmm. But he kind of expresses that, like the the big the big alarm he bell he's ringing is that we're on the verge of the sixth extinction and biodiversity is kind of slipping through our fingers. And if we don't make some big changes, part of it's driven by climate and it's also driven by industrialization and the way that and and more people on the planet and the way that we're developing the planet mm-hmm. the way we use it and because of that systems collapse that are happening in rainforests and in the ocean and i think the witness statement comes from i've lived this amazing blessed life which he says but i realized that i didn't blow this whistle soon enough like i didn't see this coming and now mm-hmm. you're on the verge of seeing it happen and it really is happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether it's glacial melt, coral bleaching, you know, palm oil plantations. Right. The palm plantations. Yeah. The, the bleaching of the coral was amazing to watch that, mm. him explain that. And on some level, we're kind of acclimated to these, you know, alarmist environmentalist documentaries yeah. at this point. But I felt like this one went to an even darker, more dire place mm-hmm. um, at the bottom of the second act. Uh, and I think it was buffered only because he's such a, you know, kind of loving, beautiful, compassionate person. 
anybody else who, t- who, who would have been hosting a movie like that, who took it to such a place like that would have almost cast themselves as um, uncredible or like some kind of crazy villain. Because I found myself thinking, this is utterly hopeless. And then he kind of revives it and is able to stick the landing in a more hopeful place. But I don't know that I've seen another documentary, maybe Al Gore's doc, it's been so long since I've seen that. But I mean, he doesn't mince words about how dire the situation is. Right, well, so I think, I, I don't have the percentages right in front of me. I have one of them, but not the other. But I think when he's born in the 30s, um, or I guess it would be the tw- late 20s when he's born. Um, no, yeah, because he's 94 now. So like yeah. late, when he's born, it's something like 65% of the wild is still intact. Mm-hmm. And now and it's 35%. The ticker, the ticker that goes down, the yeah. graphic ticker. So now yeah. it's 35%. So the UN has launched, the, it was supposed to launch this year, a big campaign to protect up biodiversity called 30 by 30. Protect 30% of the land mm-hmm. and 30% of the ocean as protected areas, no human activity, no extractive activity, no oil and gas, no palm plantations, no uh, commercial fishing, all of that. Because there's been studies done, protected areas and specifically marine protected areas actually make an area more climate resilient. And so these are both an opportunity to draw down more carbon, like you said, I think you're gonna get into Mm -hmm. the drawdown aspect of this, Mm -hmm. but um, so it's an effort to do that. It's also an effort to protect biodiversity because biodiversity is what makes these things resilient. So you need to keep that biodiversity, otherwise the system collapses. And we don't wanna get to systems collapse. That's what he's basically saying. So 30 by 30, if we can by 2030, create enough political will to protect more land, protect more areas of coastal areas, um, we have a chance to, to you know, stave off the very worst of climate change. Right, and the solution that he articulates is really lifted right out of Drawdown, mm-hmm. Paul Hawkins' book. Mm-hmm. And he basically canvases the big things that we can do and that we're working to do to solve this problem. And what I liked is he was very plant-based diet favorable, yeah. much more so than kiss the ground. He's like, we need, yeah. to, we need to adopt a plant-based diet, basically is what he says well, for he's, the most he, part. He's basically, he wants wild biodiversity, not like, tame or cultivated biodiversity. Right, right. Yeah. Right, I mean, reforesting, rewilding, yep. these are of the utmost priority to enhance the biodiversity of these dying ecosystems all over the world. Right, and rewilding is happening. That's what adding wolves to Yosemite was all about. That's what, you know, there, there's people trying to put bison back on the in the Great Plains from Canada to Mexico. There's mm-hmm. jaguar uh, rewilding initiatives in South America and in uh, in Mexico. I mean, this stuff is happening. So that that's that's the rewilding is kind of really starting to hit right now. So that's right. a good thing. Another thing that he talks about, and this is also from Drawdown, is that we need to um, raise the ceiling on the economic viability of impoverished nations and communities, mm-hmm. because when communities are doing economically better, they're less likely to have as, as many children, right? right. So it's not really population control. It's just a fact that when nations are prosperous, they tend to not procreate as much. Right, because they want more leisure time or they or whatever it is. And also, and also educating women and girls is a big, a big, is a big part of the two, which school. is also out of drawdown. What I did not realize until we talked earlier is that is that in certain pockets of the internet, this has caused controversy. Yes, uh, David Attenborough has been called an eco-fascist. 
Wh- because I have a hard time trying to understand that. Yeah, I mean, uh, who what understands? Does mean? It? What does that mean? The mm. accusation is that his take on overpopulation is the driver of climate change, which is what everything's reduced. You know, the internet being reductionist. That's the way the argument they're making is that David Attenborough is saying it's it's overpopulation that's driving climate change and driving systems collapse in nature, um, not industrialization or colonialism, which is, you know, so by by saying it's overpopulation, then the burden and the guilt goes to poor people in developing nations that uh, that aren't consuming as many resources. Of course, that's not at all what that's he's a saying. Mis- total mischaracterization it's a complete of what he mis- said. And that's what I was saying with The Intercept. I've, I've seen this because I, I am progressive and I write and report on these issues that are important to me as often as I can. It's not the only thing I do, but I, I try to do it as often as I can. And every time I do a story like this, I see activists or other journalists or whoever it is making arguments that are overreaches. And when you overreach on an argument, you don't help. You actually cause an opening for people to doubt you, you know. And so to to mischaracterize David Attenborough and suggest and to try to trash him when he's like one of the more unifying figures you could ever come up with, mm-hmm. right? Like the, like everyone loves David Attenborough. Right. I mean, he was never <laughs> he he like created an Instagram page, and in forty eight hours, he had a million people. I, I'm, I'm right. sure it's way more than that now. You like, ride everybody that horse. Loves this guy. <laughs> yeah, you ride that all the way. Yeah. Uh, you know. You know what I mean? It's like we need unifying. So, uh, and and I think that's a crackpot theory. I don't want to give it too much fuel, but it's out there, and it just mm-hmm. shows you how you can be offended by anything, including a fact that if you raise the standard of living and you and more people come out of poverty, they have less kids. It's a fact. You can examine any country that's ever uh, had a growing middle class and you'll find it. In America, you'll find it. In Japan, which is what he used, you'll find it anywhere you look. Right, yeah. Right, I mean, certainly, you know, if we're being intellectually honest, there's too many people on the planet and overpopulation is an issue. He never right. said, that we need to mandate population control. No. He's just saying if people are more prosperous, they're not gonna have as many kids. If every nuclear family has two kids, we stabilize the population. And and it's also the way that like, you know, he goes after CAFOs, he goes after the meat, you know, like mm-hmm. like you said, plant-based is the way to go. It's it's a very, you know, so it's it's not just too many people, but that is a problem, but it's also how we're feeding everybody, how we're getting our energy. You know, like I thought one solution, the fact that Morocco is getting 40% of their energy right. from I didn't solar. realize that. That was- They have the biggest solar farm, right? Right. Yeah. Right. That Why cool. can't we do that? Well, part of the problem is we actually subsidize oil and gas companies. And, you know, until Obama, we didn't do that for- uh, you know, renewable energy companies. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to do that. We, you know, Obama did do that, took some heat because he had a project that didn't do well in his early, early part of his presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, uh, then there was this incentive from states and local localities and, and sometimes from the federal government to, to do that. So we need to have the incentives in the right place, but we also have to disincentivize things like oil and gas. You know, we have to be prepared to pay a little bit more at the pump. You know, Europe pays a lot more for gas than we do typically. Um, and because we're subsidizing, uh, you know, petrol. We need a Manhattan project around renewable energy. It seems preposterous to me that with the technology that's available to us that we haven't scaled solar. 
solar scaling it's it's some i've been uh, because i know people involved in the solar industry i've my understanding is it's a battery issue you can't store it so it's also janky like we've tried to figure out how to do it at our house and have made multiple attempts with multiple companies and have continually run into issues and roadblocks that have made it not cost you know effective for us to do it i think the thing is to have you know there's a great project my friend Jason Cottle kind of launched up in Lancaster where they basically saw, he's a, he's a city manager up there and they were managing the energy up there and the Republican, he's a Republican, the mayor up there at the time, uh, I think it was Rex Tillerson, the Republican. Mm. And they said, what if we turned you know, city po- properties into solar farms? And they started doing it mm. and they started selling energy and were competing with these uh, big energy companies up there. I think it was Southern California Edison, which didn't like that. But uh, pretty soon people started buying their renewable energy from the city at a lower price. And now they're basically a renewable energy broker. um, And that's what they've become. They become their own utility. And Mm. so like, and that's a really smart solution, a very local solution. yeah, more of that, please. As opposed to just putting solar panels on your house or whatever and right. being it kind of an ice, you know, it, right. when it's systemic, you have a bigger chance. Yeah, it can't be reliant upon the consumer figuring this out. No. You need these solutions to be addressed at the top so that the origin of the energy is coming from a renewable source. All upstream, you gotta yeah. go upstream as far as you can. Yeah. But well, it, you go on. Oh, anyway, I was just gonna wrap it up by saying everybody should see this documentary. On Netflix. Yeah, two things I want to flag. One is like they we talk about they talk about commercial whaling. One thing I like mm. to think of when when we talk about can we fix it in the ocean, especially, you can really regenerate very quickly with marine protected areas and with laws. And whale numbers is a great example of what can happen when you stop doing a specific commercial activity. You know, humpback populations in many parts of the world have really rebounded. Sperm whale populations the same. Blue whales as well. We can fix it. And the ocean is really powerful regenerative machine. Mm-hmm. And when you can enact these marine protected areas, um, they can really start to um, get the biodiversity back swirling in the ocean. Um, and so that's very exciting. And so- uh, Yeah, that, but we really need some strident regulatory protection there. Yeah. And we need a, you know a global unified approach to it because right now fishing is by definition overfishing. Well, not necessarily, but there's a lot of overfished areas. Um, you know, the commercial fisheries, I think 35% are, are fished to their limit is the, is the number. Because um, I've done a story on this as well, we can link to if you want to, uh-huh. about overfishing. It was around poke and it was around, it was around tuna, basically. And I think the number was 35%. He quoted is, is fish to the maximum capacity. Um, but when it comes to tuna, it's something like 80% or something like that. Wow. I mean, even Hawaii imports tuna in, in um, when, when it's not in season around the islands, never used to be that way. Yeah. Um, tuna and salmon are kind of the big fin fish that are, that are uh, either overfished or they're farmed in ways that are harmful. Uh, but there are people fixing those problems and there are, is fair trade. So like, I know we're, we're plant-based, we don't wanna get into that, but there is a way of doing that. But it, it, looking at this documentary, um, you know, plant-based people are not necessarily out of the woods. Cause like, if you look at butter alternatives, a lot of palm oil. Yeah, palm oil is a huge problem. Yeah, And I think that that's, you know, it's an important point to make that just by eating plant-based, that's a huge step in the right Big direction. Deal. Yes, But we also need to be more mindful about what particular plant foods we're eating, how they're being harvested, where they're coming from. 
Because if we're doubling down on the palm oil, we're perpetuating, exacerbating a huge problem. And not just here, you know, like Indonesia, I spent a lot of time there. And then way back in the day, it was all coconut oil. It was, you know, you could mm. buy it locally. And now it's bimoli, this palm oil that everyone is eating and obesity rates have gone up. And, uh, you know, it's it, because palm oil is being made cheap in Borneo. And Borneo is the case study that he uses in this film. Right. And in order to, to cultivate these products, you have to basically shellac the rainforest just and, mo- and monocrop it. And yeah. that's the core of what Attenborough is getting at, which is the lack of biodiversity. When you do that, you just lose the ability to support, you know, thousands, if not millions of species. Absolutely. And the downstream impact of that is catastrophic and leads us to this system collapse that he's speaking about. How about a little uh, shout out to these lions of conservation and, and fire, uh, you know, David Attenborough, Jane Goodall and Sylvia Earle. That Goodall and Earl are in their 80s. Mm. Um, it's like there's a longevity lesson in like having this purpose coupled with nature, right? Like something I think our friend right. Dan Buettner might speak to probably. It's about. true. Like yeah. how how old is Jane Goodall now? She's in her 80s, mid 80s, I think. Yeah. Did yeah. You see? She has a documentary out. Uh, no, yeah. I haven't seen that it's one very yet. Good. Soon to be reviewed on, on a future <laughs> roll on. Wait, I have to watch that again? Depending upon the, the Netflix <laughs> release schedule, I suppose. <laughs> I know. Yes, we watch a lot of television, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, it's striking how vibrant and present and with it Attenborough is at 94. Yeah. Well, you mean when you see our two presidential candidates going head to head, it's striking He looks to see. younger than those guys do. <laughs> looks, I know. Well, yeah, but you got Joe does look good in aviators. Come on. He does. Did you see Jim Carrey impersonating <laughs> I, I him? Did. I'm sorry. No, I, I did. But uh, he does rock aviators. I've never <laughs> seen does, a guy. Like ever since Tom Cruise. The Corvette. <laughs> You know, the whole thing. Yes. Right. Uh, Well, with that, I guess we can pivot to a little bit of election related news. We're we're about 20 days away right now. 20 days out. Um, 20 days out, man. Unbelievable. Um, Oh God. It's crazy, right? I want it to to be over. (laughs) It's not gonna be over. Even when it's over, it's not gonna be over. No, this, no, go on. I don't wanna even get into that guy's name. Um. But the specific thing that I think would be interesting to talk about here is is the content moderation wars that are going on yeah. right now as we as we enter this you know very last phase before everybody casts their ballot, mm-hmm. um, and it's relevant to the discourse that we had about the social dilemma and the weaponization of social media, and we're seeing these platforms that we all know now are extremely powerful in you know shifting the tide of public opinion struggling with how to deal with everything from campaign ads to outright misinformation. Twitter's sort of leading the cause, yes. I think. Yeah, definitely. New York Times has, has an article that came out the other day, Twitter turning off some features. Maybe you can speak about that a little bit. I feel like Jack Dorsey of all of the, uh, you know, kind of uh, tech billionaires has been endeavoring to try to solve what I think is really an almost impossible problem to solve. It seemed like he was the most laissez-faire for a period of time. And now he's like mm. actually the most proactive and involved in in trying to help. And, and I think if I remember correctly, the warning label, it's basically they're talking about warning labels. Basically before you retweet something, if it's not from a, a vetted news source and it's potentially kind of getting into the misinformation realm, you'll get a warning label. Mm. And you'll have to click twice before you retweet it. Right. But how do you calibrate that? So that's like, being calibrated. If I, I think, wanted to right. retweet that Glenn Greenwald article, right. 
that is very much, you know, of a certain mind, would that be flagged as potentially misinformation because he has a strong point of view on that issue? Or is that kosher? Like, how do we distinguish between misinformation, problematic, and vetted? Like, it's an impossible rubric. It's the algorithm, bro. That'll save us. Yeah, right. Um, Let's just, we've completely divested our critical thinking skills uh, to the social media algorithms who are gonna decide for us what's misinformation and what is not. I think it's like it's supposed to be a team effort. Like the algorithm kind of flags what it flags and then, and then human monitors go in and look. But obviously there's so much information flooding these networks. How can they possibly have human monitors like look at everything? Millions of hours of content every it's single impo- day. It's impossible. It is impossible. Yeah. So, but I think Twitter also banned political ads a year ago. Right. And I think Facebook and Google are banning them starting on election day, which seems it's late. ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> seems late. Right. <laughs> Unless you're Ken Bone, you have decided at this point who you're, who you're voting for. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that big a calendar guy, but it does seem late to ban them after the election. <laughs> I thought it was, at least with Facebook, I thought it was originally like 30 days before the election or something like that. October 20th, they're going to start deplatforming or some clamp down and like flag misinformation On as well. On campaign, like specific campaign advertising, right. which is so ridiculous because when you look at the balance sheet of Facebook, the amount of revenue that they're generating from paid campaign advertising is pretty de minimis mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. And it would not have taken much for Zuckerberg to just say, we're out of this business. We're not gonna take money for campaign ads, period. It wouldn't really have affected their bottom line. Right. So it's baffling to me why they're taking such a hard stand on this. Well, I think that they look at all content as the same. They don't, and they don't want to be arbiters of what's true content, you know, what's true and what's not, what's what's fair game, what is not. Um, but that ship has sailed, and they've already but, been but compelled like said, to do I that. Think, They're doing it. They've 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 deleted all of these QAnon right. Facebook groups. They're trying to address that, which gets back into you know the whack a mole issue that we're going to get into a little bit. Right. Deeper. Well, what you had flagged with Twitter, it's the same thing. It's like maybe Zuckerberg realizes it's whack a mole. I'm being generous because I think they failed in a big way. You know, like obviously from 2016 with the whole Cambridge Analytica where they were really micro-targeting with the fake mm. news stories and misinformation. Those are the ads, by the way. We're thinking of ads of like, you know, Trump saying, vote Trump, this is paid for, blah, blah, blah. No, and in Facebook, an ad can be a bullshit story targeted to you. And right. you click on it thinking that it's a story, like an, an article, but really mm. it's an ad. So that's the kind of stuff they're 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 attempting basically to not be a part of any sort of campaign to subvert the results of the election. That's why they're banning it starting on on election day. Google's the same way. But these campaigns have been going on for years at this point. They're already saying, you know, you know, Donald Trump Jr. on Facebook wrote saying, you know, we need armies of people monitoring these elections, <laughs> like self-appointed right. election monitors. Well, and there was that thing with Charlie Kirk also where he was behind like a bot farm that mm. was of young people who were supposed to be, you know, behind you know pushing out all kinds of campaign related stuff around Trump even even today their story broke that like the state republican party in california is putting bullshit ballot collecting places to collect to deposit your ballot stuff oh, that's not that, sanctioned with the election board oh my God. that's happening right now in I california I didn't, know, I didn't know that yeah 
So you think you're submitting your ballot and it's like a fake Who knows? They're trying to say, hey, if you trust us to turn your ballot, fine, put it here. But yes, they could very easily like look at the ballot and throw out half of them or whatever. That's straight up weird, like third world coup type stuff. That is. But, you know, in this article about Facebook in the New York Times, Facebook widens ban on political ads as alarm rises over election. There's some interesting phraseology in here. I mean, it says, for years, Facebook has been striving to avoid another 2016 election fiasco. Like, has it? Has it really? I don't think it has. No. Yeah. When it was used by Russian operatives to spread disinformation and to destabilize the American electorate. Zuckerberg has since spent billions of dollars to hire new employees for the company's quote unquote integrity and security. Like they're spending more now in this, whatever this is, um, than the money they're probably raking in from the campaign ads themselves. So it's two different things. It's the campaign ads, and then it's also all the other kind of shenanigans that go on on social media. And it's not just campaign ads. They've taken down, what, 150,000 QAnon accounts or some crazy mm. thing or posts or something like that. Right. They're trying to get a handle on QAnon, but that ship has sailed. Right. Well, Wired just came out with an article also on this. A Facebook ban won't stop QAnon. I mean, Kevin Roos was reporting on this and he was he was seemingly striking a, rel- a kind of optimistic tone, at yeah. least as of like a week ago or so, thinking this was actually progress because- all those groups disappeared and the level of like chatter, which he pays attention to closely around the kind of QAnon type stuff had seemed to diminish somewhat. So he's in favor of the Facebook taking him down. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's he's heralding it as a step in the right direction. I don't know that it's ultimately going to solve the wire story looks at like the fact that these these people well, they just metastasize. go underground. They just, yeah. they figure out different <laughs> emojis and <laughs> hashtags up, and then they resurface. They come up with different you know? hand signals. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Um, but Matt Taibbi has an interesting take on all of this that he wrote about uh, on his, his Substack. That's kind of a, a counterpoint. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so he's saying what you're saying, basically, that it's a whack game of whack-a-mole. Uh, Matt Taibbi, for those who don't know, is uh, a great journalist with Rolling Stone, he, or he used to be with Rolling Stone. I don't know if he still writes for them, but he's now got his own thing yeah. through Substack. It's an email you can sign up for. You should start a Substack. Me? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure I have the Taibbi following, but maybe after a few but more it's, of But it's a episodes. pretty cool platform, yeah. and you're seeing all these journalists now who are leaving traditional media they and are. basically starting their own little fiefdoms. They are. So they tend to have big followings. I think I'd need to, you yeah. know, flex out, maybe buy some followers. Casey Newton just did it, uh, who's like a tech reporter. Yeah. More and more people are doing it. This could be your thing. This could be my thing. I thought yeah. coming on the Ritual podcast was my this thing. This is part of your thing. This is how you're building the <laughs> tribe that's all gonna migrate to your substack. You didn't hear that I was gonna buy followers? <laughs> <laughs> no. Who was I talking to the other day who was saying they were, oh, I had, um, I had, this is a tangent, but I had Ravi Patel on the podcast the other day. I haven't, obviously I haven't published that uh, conversation yet, but he's got a TV show on HBO Max called The Pursuit of Happiness. Okay. And he's he's super funny and interesting. And he did that documentary, Meet the Patels, like Mm. back in 2014 or whatever. He's very charming. Was he former Daily Show? No, you're thinking of, uh, he's worked with that guy. What's his name? I, I'm thinking Aziz, but it's not Aziz. It's uh, I'll think of it in a minute. But anyway, um, it's a pretty cool, you know, sort of travel show in the vein of Bourdain, where he goes oh, to cool. kind of answer these questions, and it's super interesting. But he's never been a social media person, and his social media was always kind of private. But then 
with the show coming out, he was like, oh, I should open these accounts up and make them public facing, but he doesn't have a huge following. So right. he told me he was gonna buy followers. And I was like, it's a bad idea, man, don't do that. Maybe I can go in with him on yeah. followers. Yeah, you guys can pull your resources. <laughs> By the way, I would never yeah. buy followers. Come on, I wouldn't mm. do that. I can't afford that. All right, but back to Taibi here. Um, yes, Taibi doesn't need to buy followers. He's got a lot no. of them. And he has done some really important reporting. The best stuff I think he got his biggest name was he reported on the financial crisis in 2007, mm. 2008, linked it to Goldman Sachs and really right. came after Goldman. Did he and write a book about that or was did. that? Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's like some, like the man eating squid, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. It's it's very gonzo. He's a gonzo kind of guy. Right. And he's very much pro first amendment. So you can read this stuff and, he's, and he- He doesn't fall into any particular political- realm. No, he was a, he was, very much against the Russia Mueller investigation. He's he thinks that's bullshit. Um, but at the same time, and he's very much into uh, free speech. He wrote a scathing review of white fragility. So he's, but he is progressive, and um, and he's done a lot of investigative. He did, he did an Eric Garner book that is supposed to be amazing on the death of Eric Garner. So he's mm-hmm. been on the right side of a lot of this stuff, but he's you can't pin him down. And so he is talking about exactly what you say. The sheer scale of logistical task involved with shorting through billions of pieces of content a day makes any hope at even-handed moderation a fantasy. And he's talking about, like, do we really want private companies engaged in trying to tell us what's right and wrong, what's no, true and, and, and not true? That's the whole point of having free speech. It's the best way to manage this bullshit. It only works in the clearest of cases, mm. but... You know, if there was ever a slippery slope, this is it. I mean, how do you even begin to approach managing this problem? Right. Like it's, look, if there's a clear case of just sheer insanity, okay, you could label this as misinformation, but almost everything in between has shades of nuance to it. There might be aspects to certain reporting that's true, other aspects that aren't. You just can't possibly police this on an internet where million, as we said earlier, like millions of hours of content and thousands of journalistic pieces are getting uploaded every single day. If you took it in how do we regulate big tech direction, what if one solution is, if you're gonna allow someone to post New York Times on Facebook, then Facebook has to pay the New York Times. Therefore, in the, in the financial transaction of paying the New York Times, they are incentivized to uplift the New York Times or, or mm-hmm. any sort of like, actual media company. like That's the way that it should be. That's the way it should be. Because if someone posts a blog post and it doesn't cost anything for Facebook to to use that piece of content, then maybe that's just, that's how you know. You know, one is a professional media company and one is not. Mm. And if you have to pay for that blog post, then fine. But like, you know, maybe what we need to do is stop allowing Google and Facebook and uh, Twitter to be, these distribution systems of real stories. Where the publishers are paying the platforms to amplify their stories and their content. So it's actually backwards right now. It's backwards right now. Right, this is something that um, Scott Galloway talks about a lot. Scott Galloway is a professor of business at NYU. He does a podcast with Kara Swisher called Pivot, Mm. and he's got his own new podcast called Prof G. But he's out, way out ahead, uh, you know, on a lot of these issues and has been talking about this, you know, quite a bit lately. Yeah, he's saying, this is what Taibi is saying. The current system is the worst of all worlds. It's invisible to the public, clearly invites government recommendations on speech, allows a gameable system of anonymous complaints to influence content and gives power to an unelected, unaccountable body of private media regulators. 
And the problem isn't that those people right now might be, they might be on our side when we're talking about our side, when we're talking about like Trump misinformation and stuff that benefits uh, bad actors, that's what I mean by our side. Right now, the algorithm might be tuned in to be looking at, you know, calls for election, like bad faith election monitoring. Mm. But like 20 years from now, it might not be the right thing that they're after. You know what I mean? So like, that's the problem when you start to pick and choose censorship. That's the problem with it. Yeah. It's cre- it creeps. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't purport to have a solution to it other than to know that this is a huge problem right now. And it's, it's not in service to our humanity or our unity as a population or as a country. And we're, these things have huge real world ramifications on behavior. Do you feel like we're living in a Petri dish right now? Yeah, we've been foisted, you know, foisted upon us are these incredibly powerful social media platforms. And without any experimentation or research, we're just consuming them and using them Mm -hmm. in this grand experiment that we're already realizing is really not healthy for any of us. No. And again, you know, back to the social dilemma. I mean, this is the this is the dilemma that these tech creators are, are you know, ruminating over right now. This idea that they set out to make the world better or to solve problems and have also, you know, created problems they couldn't have foreseen. That's it, you know, it's like, you know, the unintended consequences of good intentions. <laughs> That's the story yeah. of- <laughs> I think it's also important alive. to remember that yeah. there's some ridiculously low percentage of the population on Twitter. We tend really? to think of Twitter as a proxy for kind of taking the pulse of where people are at on certain issues. But I think it's something like 2% of Americans are on Twitter. But Facebook, it's like a billion people are on Facebook or more, That's true. right? Yeah, Facebook is like a big one. But how many people are the outspoken, you know, loud voices on issues? And how many people are just sharing photos of their family? No, I, I think... I think what Kevin Roos's stuff is showing us is that the people that you think are just sharing photos of their family, they're they're sharing QAnon posts. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. Like, like can we just talk about QAnon just for one more yeah. second? There was a good story. I'm always available to talk about <laughs> so QAnon. Germany is becoming the next QAnon hotbed. I don't know if you saw this story. No. And um, basically, that means that right wing Germans are having a fantasy right now that Donald Trump will send the American military, <laughs> I'm not fucking with you, into Germany and depose Merkel and thereby elevating their interests, the average right-wing German's interests, uh, because you know Merkel is bad for Germany. So that means people who like Hitler are rooting for the allies to take over Germany in <laughs> 2020. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> so as a Jew, I can make a Hitler joke. So this is like, this, this is was, real. This was inferred from some Q drop, some cryptic yes, Q they, drop. You, you gotta read, it's a great story. There've been a lot, the same reporter who's been kind of uh, reporting on East German um, extremism and just German extremism who, who broke the story about how uh, special forces and, and police departments have been infiltrated by right-wing neo-Nazi types in mm-hmm. Germany. That same reporter does this story. And uh, I'm sorry, I, for, I, I spaced on her name, but I'll get you for, to, for the show notes. We mm-hmm. can make sure that's in there. Right. But, um, but uh, it's great reporting. 
And one of the main in guys one publication? is publication? New York Times. Oh, New York, okay. And this one this one, one of the big outspoken pro Q or he's he says he doesn't fully believe in it, but he's a, a right wing, all right guy, is uh German but adopted. He's actually Turkish descent, adopted, and he's a huge celebrity vegan chef. Oh, I think you did send me something yeah. about this. Yeah. Or somebody did. I did. I didn't I didn't read it yet. Yeah, so yeah. isn't that crazy? That is really crazy. <laughs> How do you square that with the America first, make America great, non-interventionist, you know, ideology? That's kind of the premise of the administration. The point is they're both they're doing nationalism wrong. <laughs> yeah. Don't they don't these nationalists know what they're doing? <laughs> I don't even know, man. It's so crazy. I can't even Yeah, it's it's mental. Begin to wrap my head around it. I know. It's like we are living, the point is, how do you wrap your head around it but just to exist, right? Because all this stuff, if you if you peek your head under the curtain or behind, you know, under the hood and you see what's happening, which you have to do because like it's 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 so critical these next three weeks, you know, especially certainly in this country. You have to stay in, in touch with it and know what's coming. But at the same time, it's like, how do you then pull back and just gut on with your own business and your own life? Like, you know, because it is crazy making. Yeah. Where is the boundary between just minding your business, living your life, trying to take care of your family versus speaking up or participating in what has become just a very confusing morass of misinformation and emotions run wild? Yeah. It's very disorienting. And it's hard to it's hard to find your ballast in all of that. It's very weird. I had But a- I have to believe that. Most Americans are level-headed, rational actors. The majority are, but is it enough to get a big, you know, like we, you know, most Americans voted for Hillary Clinton. Mm. Well, we will soon find out in 20 days from now. And we'll be and here to break it down can, for you. you know, land this on a teachable moment, it's just to please vote and to make sure that you cast that ballot and make sure that it gets into the hands that it's supposed to get in Yes, so that it's properly counted. You know, early voting or go drop it, drop it in, in you know, the, the, there are election sites, there are state and government run election sites. That's where you want to look. Don't look mm-hmm. at a, a Repu- Republican or Democratic Party site. Look at the actual election, .gov sites. That's, that'll tell you where to vote. Right. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with a little show and tell and listener questions. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend, Amanda Decadene, is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. 
Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. back how was that how was that good. break it was good was it good for you so let's talk about social entrepreneurship okay a little with a l- little light dusting of conscious capitalism oh <laughs> i like my conscious capitalism <laughs> um, this is the show and tell segment uh there's actually nothing to show we're just gonna I, tell you didn't this bring the, in a roll of toilet paper i didn't i didn't well let's do that one first yeah so that was the plan. I was going to bring in this roll of toilet paper by a company called Who Gives a Crap. Yep. We've been using this brand for a while, and you have as well, right? Yeah, we use it. April brought it into my life, and uh, it's a great brand. Like when everyone was was scouring the shelves for toilet paper, we had a big box of it in a closet, and we are not even toilet paper hoarders, but we felt like it. Because Did we you had order so much it online? It. Yeah. Yeah. We I think, just had already gotten I think, delivered. I think this company blew up when nobody could find their toilet paper at the <laughs> beginning of the pandemic, because that's how we started ordering it. And we get these massive boxes in the mail with like more toilet paper than we could possibly ever use. I don't know we if We use started. a lot. We got six people in our house, so we go through it quickly. Yeah. Um, how many bidets do you have? We have no bidets. We have two bidets. Do you? Three people now, two bidets. Did you install those or did the apartment come with bidets? No, no, I. it's one of those... Um, Tushy, it's called. Right. T-U-S-H-Y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that company is sponsoring podcasts. I've heard, I've heard spots for them. Yeah. To get your tushy now. We need, we, we, it's we like Regeneron. Do it you, <laughs> we can Regeneron. Do, well, if you don't have a bidet, then you need toilet paper. And first you need of all, it anyway. First of all, like this company does not sponsor the podcast, although no. I'd be happy if they did, because I think it's really cool what they're doing. Um, basically, it's a direct to consumer um, toilet paper brand. It ships right to your house and they donate. 50% of their profits to build toilets. Yeah. And I think that's really cool. And I think that that is significant. It's not 5%, it's not 1%, it's 50%. Right. Like, it's that's the, it's real. the Tom Shoes model, but but like 5X, right? Or 10X or something like right. that. Right, well, the Tom Shoes model, I think for every sho- pair of shoes you bought, they would donate one pair of shoes. Right, so that's But not, at their cost. At their so cost. So it's a little right. bit different. Like this, yeah. this is even more significant. Much, much more, yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it brings up a broader conversation about social entrepreneurship in general and yes. the effectiveness of conscious capitalism. Um, you have some thoughts on this. I'll, let yeah. me preface it by just saying that I think these are movements to be celebrated. Like when I have a choice of what toilet paper I'm gonna buy, I can buy the one I've always bought at the store or I can buy one that's donating 50% of its profits to do something good. Right. So that's inherently a good thing, right? And that's gonna inform my consumer choices. But I think it's also important for 
the conscious consumer to be able to discern the difference between something that is real, and in the case of who gives a crap, I think it is real, versus this growing trend of kind of greenwashing, mm -hmm. where all these brands feel like they need to be part of this conversation and this movement. So they step into it, but they do it in a very kind of tokenism kind of way. Yeah, That's not meaningful way. That's like like, meaningful. like the investment banker who's uh, taking a knee in favor of Black Lives Matter, but really, mm -hmm. you know, is- uh, It's <laughs> more like under right. social pressure right. because you kind of have to do that now right. if you want to be, you know, in the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, I think my thoughts came in after this thank you brand thing that is coming up, right? Like they're another Australian company that uh, that you sent me that Right, so my friend Steve Barr forwarded me this thing about this company, thank you, um, which I thought was really interesting. I sent it to you. Yep. It's also, you know, of this ilk. Um, I'm still not quite sure what it is that they that they do. They're like um, they're like they me. do like a more affordable ASOP kind of uh product like like beauty products or hygiene healthy kind of health and beauty products like lotions and things mm -hmm. and they I think they made 10 million according to this video I saw they made like they had a 10 million dollar windfall from hand sanitizer during the pandemic. And then, uh, but their whole thing is thank you. Like you give us money, we're gonna give, we're gonna pay it forward, and we're gonna fund, uh, you know, hunger projects uh, in developing nations. And so, mm. if you watch the video, it's Africa, Southeast Asia. They're doing these, you know, it's it's it. There's a it 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 reeks a little bit of white saviorism, which is an issue. But my problem with the social entrepreneurship stuff is, does it work? Right? Is it is conscious capitalism? It does it work on its own? Um, is it just another sales pitch? You know, that's what I wonder. I always like, I always, I'm always skeptical of anyone who says they're going to change the world. Because I mean, I, I don't mean to be How an dare asshole. You? I, I don't mean to that's be. That's the an only asshole. way anybody does change the world. No, though. no. If you tell me you're changing the world, it is not the same thing as showing me you change the world. And the reason I came to that conclusion is, I've done some stories where I went into. I mean, I've, I've tried to report on on issues a lot. Um, and the biggest impact I've ever made isn't from some issue story like the CAFO story we talked about or an overfishing story or, you know, story about displaced people's camps in Burma. It's like when I did a uh, Lonely Planet book in Thailand and reported on this small family's pad Thai stand that nobody really knew about except for the Thai people in the area and put it in Lonely Planet. And then when I came back three years later, it's like a huge restaurant and they're mm. killing it. Mm. And there's something about like the most effective change has to work. You know, it can't just be, we're doing this thing. The reason who gives a crap works isn't because of the latrines at all. It's because they deliver the toilet paper to you. There's no plastic wrapped around it. It, it works on so many levels. One level is well, the consciousness level. Well, that has to come level. first. The product has to be good and it has to function. And it can't be in plastic. It's gotta, do, it's gotta be better in a lot of ways. It's gotta solve multiple problems, not just one. And so it has to work. So I don't have a problem with social entrepreneurship. I just don't think because you tell me you're doing X, Y, Z, I believe you. Yeah, but I do think that in this age that we find ourselves in, that if you're starting a company, there has to be a social entrepreneurship aspect to it in order to be competitive, particularly if you're trying to appeal to anyone who's millennial or, mm -hmm. or younger. And I think that's a good thing. It is good, but then- I just think you know not all of it is gonna be effective, but to the extent that companies are thinking about this and 
at least endeavoring in good faith to try to make some kind of impact that isn't that something that we should be celebrating. It is, but Google used to say don't be evil was their motto. Uh-huh. And look what happened. I mean like, you know, like 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 when you do that, basically you're absolving the government from putting into a social safety net that actually works. You're absolving you're absolving the public institutions from doing Can't their job. Can we do job. both though? We live in a capitalist society. So, right. can we not um, you know, marshal the levers of capitalism to do what capitalism does best, which is to move consumer habits and markets into a position where they can make a positive impact. I would love that. But like, you know, uh, what's Mrs. Jobs, Steve Jobs' uh, wife's Oh, I forget name. her first name. Yeah, yeah. I know who you mean. She bought the Atlantic. She bought, you know, she her foundation bought California Sunday, some other really good niche publications. And just this week, she, fi- you know, they had to fire people because at some point, you know, the angel business, the angel, you know, wealthy entrepreneur or, or benefactor, that kind of stuff doesn't always work. And so then what happens when it, when it doesn't work or people lose interest? You, know? you prevent the government from performing the function that it should be performing. I mean, a perfect example would be PPE, right? right. Like at the beginning of the pandemic and we didn't have that, right. it was the billionaires that came in and had to like fill in that gap. Which is good, you know, in wartime you, to marshal the, to have the government come in and say, look, we need this and this from you. I'm all for that. Like, I, I'm not saying business doesn't play a role and I'm not saying it's bad to, you know, be keen on social entrepreneurship. I think it's great. Um, I just think that you don't want to get to the point where we're relying on businesses to do that because it's the same problem with relying on big tech to regulate itself. It's like you're you're asking private companies to do these things when in reality there should be latrines where I, and I we're, we love who gives a crap, but there should be latrines in these places because there are people there. Right, but there's <laughs> but the thing is there aren't. I know. Right. <laughs> So you know, there is this argument that- either an NGO is going to go in and right. solve that problem, yeah. or the government in that particular locale is going to take care of it. And yeah. in the event that that's not happening, let's buy a little. Who gives a crap? I love who. You I, know? Believe me, I, I so are I you used saying, you earlier? Do you are you a believer in the idea of conscious capitalism at all, or do you find that to be? I am. I I think what we need really. To, I'm kind of just going off the cuff here. I have not looked into it. I'm sure there are is some really good research into the benefits of social entrepreneurship and conscious capitalism. I think there is because there there definitely is a lot of academic studies on do does foreign aid work, and it doesn't always come back positive on foreign aid. And so this is kind of a neighbor to foreign aid. It's like foreign aid adjacent. It's right. not It's not big foundations or foreign governments bringing in boatloads of money, but it is a smaller scale version of that. Uh-huh. And, and what does that do to the places that you're helping long-term? Right. And these are situations where we're not gonna be able to audit you know, where the money's going, right. how effectively it's being used. I mean, I could tell you, I'm no expert on conscious capitalism, but I've got a little bit of experience with it. And I was a speaker at John Mackey's Conscious Capitalism Conference and John Mackey, the CEO, founder of Whole Foods, um, he wrote the book on this. He's a big believer in it. He's got some interesting you know, political ideas as well. But I was able to spend a weekend at this conference and meet a lot of these business owners, CEOs, et cetera, who are involved in this movement. And I left that experience feeling better than when I arrived, that people are thinking about this and trying to use 
capitalist forces to solve problems that are currently not being addressed or are under, underserved or not adequately being solved. Yeah. And I'm all for like this idea. Like, I think one of the biggest problems we have is that we have a market capitalistic structure, which, which incentivizes big companies that own lots of smaller companies to bleed every last dollar from of profit out of a product. So we're spending $150 on shoes that cost 20, you know, $20 to make and ship, you know, like, like I would like a much kinder economy that makes it easier to live. Like I would love that. Mm. Um, we don't have that. Um, and, and it's nice when social entrepreneurship comes up, it would be great if every company thought about, you know, what's better for society? Like, should we maximize our profit here? Can we afford to not to here? I would love that. There's just no way to make it uniform. Um, but I am in favor of it. Yeah. Yeah. Effective altruism is probably better. Like if you're looking to be part of uh, solving a problem that's not being solved right now. Yeah. Uh, effective altruism is basically the study of how to best use resources to solve problems the most economically. Um, I had a guy on the podcast a while back who's a, you know one of the big movers in this in this world. His name is William McCaskill, and basically he's like he's part of this. Um, community where they pledge a certain amount of their income every year. I think I think thirty percent of his okay. annual income, something wow. very significant. Very Maybe even more. Like he's capped his his salary at some you know quite low sum that allows right. him to live, and then everything else he gives away. And the the manner in which he decides where to donate his money is dictated not by his emotional attachment to certain causes, but to what is most effective. And and that means that he ends up like buying a lot of malaria nets. Like that's the cheapest right. thing that you can do to solve the well, most the number same of with lives. The, like, yeah, Bill and Gates it's not as sexy as like, oh, yeah. I wanna start a music school in you know downtown LA or something right. like that, where you have like, you feel emotionally invested in it or you know some kind of connection to it that isn't necessarily logical in the calculus of money versus lives saved. Right. So yeah, well, it, who was that? There was that story years ago about the guy who runs his company and decided to cap his pay at like a hundred thousand. The CEO that capped his pay at hundred thousand dollars. Oh yeah, so yeah, could, Dan. Um, I met that guy at a conference, yeah. and it's great. Yeah, yeah. These are great stories, and, and like, but I don't see them catching fire. I don't see, <laughs> I don't see. You know what I mean? I don't see it. So like, it's great in the small scale. We can only affect our locality. I love it. That's good. And I'm in favor of it. I mean, I I would like this all to work, and, and I think to save to solve our really complex problems, we need it. We need so many different solutions. So I'm in favor mm -hmm. of these small solutions. I just don't think you can depend on a hand sanitizer salesman to solve them. How dare you! <laughs> all right, one more thing I want to share before we uh, move on um, from show and tell. I guess this is a show and tell. Uh, Back to you know reviewing content on Netflix, mm. I suppose we are Netflix. Um, but <laughs> we are Netflix. <laughs> uh, I watched um, Song Exploder on Netflix the other day. For mm. people that don't know, Song Exploder is a podcast where the host um, basically takes a band or a song, and over the course of the podcast, like deconstructs how that song was made with interviews from the musicians. It's super interesting if you are curious about the creative process in general, like how do these things come together? And he does it in a very engaging and fascinating way. Mm -hmm. That podcast was developed into a limited television series on Netflix. And I think what's interesting about it and significant is that 
we're in this moment right now where the entertainment industry is looking at podcasts as a means to develop them for television shows and a lot of show a lot of a lot of big podcasts have been translated into television shows but it's primarily been in the true crime kind of genre right. like dirty john and shows like that that turn into like episodic television uh, and some of these shows translate well others don't but I think Song Exploder is probably the best example of a podcast turned into a TV show. It's wonderfully, beautifully, exquisitely executed with amazing cinematography yeah. and really compelling interviews. So I only watched two episodes. I watched the one with R.E.M. and I'm biased because R.E.M. is my favorite band. Ah. But they deconstruct the song Losing My Religion mm -hmm. with interviews with all the band members. Yep. I just thought it Brilliant. was really cool. Yeah. And then Lin-Manuel Miranda, I watched that episode deconstructing the Aaron Burr song from Hamilton. Yeah, I watched those episodes too. I thought the coolest thing about that one is the fact that uh, George Washington was meeting with his cabinet at in Washington Heights. Right, in Washington which Heights, I which is I never in knew that. Lynn's neighborhood. Right, I just never knew that. I know. And so that's kind of And it brings cool. it all home. Yeah. And he used to sit in that house and write. And rap to I himself. guess it was open, it's open as a museum and he would just sit yeah. in the corner of a chair and work all day and people would come in and- Wander around, yeah. <laughs> while you're the, sitting like, there, who's that guy trying to channel, you know, the energy of that era. I didn't realize it took him five years, and like, he, you know, he when he first uh, was speaking about this project, you know, at the White House, because into into Heights was out, so he had mm -hmm. a little name and cachet, and obviously from the the group that he was in, he right? Was, freestyle, yeah, freestyle, Love, love Supreme. Supreme. Um, and but people were laughing at his idea at first. Yeah. And uh and look at what it became. I thought that was a really good episode. I think REM, I mean, I didn't realize uh to the extent, I guess looking back, it makes perfect sense how losing my my religion took them from like this kind of quirky alt band to like U two level superstar. Yeah. It was uh, it was yeah. a huge, you know, uh lever in that gear that yeah. took him to and 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 how that song became like an anthem to yeah. different communities of people for different reasons out of Athens Georgia Athens Georgia at that time remember they had REM B52s Indigo Girls that Athens Georgia was a was a little hotbed it's it a great town it I love was. Athens Georgia I do too yeah. I do too I yeah. love it Shout I did a Athens, I did a talk there a couple of years ago I'd never been there before and I just basically uh just Put the earbuds in and had REM on the whole time. I was there Did trying you? to. I was like, I wonder where he grew. Where where's Michael Stipe's where's house? That church? Like, where's that? Where was their like headquarters? Their little recording studio. They lived in a, think, like a, a reclaimed church that had become yeah, like yeah, an yeah, art. Yeah. Like Peter Peter Buck and I should have asked Michael somebody Stipe. where that is. Uh, I I would have liked to have yeah. visited that. But what I like is it's really creative how they use the tracks. Like they get the demos. They get right. the, they get the like they isolate the, the out all the different tracks. parts yeah. and then they yeah. play them to the yeah. band members. And then you're able That's to cool. watch their facial expressions yeah. in real time, like listening to that. And something about the fact that REM, this happened so much longer ago and they're just older dudes makes mm -hmm. like the gravitas hit me a little bit more than having just watched Hamilton and Lynn's been getting so much play lately. Although I did like that one too, but mm -hmm. like the REM just kind of looking back at this song, you know. And they have perspective yeah. now because yeah. they're in a different place in their lives. Yeah. Um, all right, win of the week. Win First of the week. up, we got to talk about Sarah Hall. This the I think win of the week, with respect to Rafa Nadal, who was amazing, and that's my true. Lakers. Are you going to put on? The, he's putting on his Lakers face mask. Yes, big Lakers, ups for the baby. Lakers last night and LeBron James and fourth title and fourth Finals MVP. I mean, 
amazing. And if you, there was a great story that Lindsey Krauss did for the Times on uh, on the Dow of Rafa, and like LeBron is kind of somebody I actually I think when he speaks, you can actually take pieces and and apply them. That's what's so great about sports is you could take pieces of you know answers that they might give you to questions and use that as fodder for how you live your own life. Like I remember when I was writing One Breath. Um, he had he was talking about how you know you you leave it all on the floor and live with the results and i had never written a book before a narrative book like that before and and i was like felt like i was in over my head and i knew the only thing i could do is give it my very best and live with the results if it got rejected if it never made it anywhere i would be able to live with that mm. and and this week i think the theme is sometimes you don't have to win to win you don't have to be first place to win the event like and and we can talk about these right. two people. Well, just to put a, a pin on LeBron, yeah. what what is most you know amazing about that guy is like here's a guy who from the time he was a young teenager mm. was given the imprimatur of like being the next hugest thing ever. Like yeah. he was going to inherit the reins of Michael Jordan, and he fucking lived up to it. Amazing, amazing. He lived up to he it. He exceeded expectations actually. Yeah. Like he, it's hard to actually be given that expectation and to exceed it. 99 times out of a hundred, that would have crushed that person. People fail. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and to do it at his level. And now he's like turning, helping to turn stadiums into voting areas. And like, yeah, his activity off the court is equally impressive. If not, maybe more impressive. He's unbelievable. In terms of the impact and the legacy that that guy's leaving. And, 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 and it's so weird to be so good and so dominant and to accumulate haters like he has. And, 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 you know, a lot of that I think came from a racial place when he decided to, to take control of his own um, career and put people that he was close to his friends as, as kind of, you know, his agent and mm-hmm. the person who was working on movies with, and those people are now like ballers and, right. uh, and he did it and they're all huge successes. And, uh, and you don't hear any negative, like there's just no, there's no scandal with LeBron. It's right. amazing. Right. All right, but on to Sarah Hall. But yes. So yes, winning the race without winning the race. Yeah. I mean, she's definitely the story of the London Marathon. Absolutely. Even though she got second. Uh, It's just such a magnificent performance on her part. So in the midst of this stacked field in which she's competing against the current marathon world record holder and the 2019 marathon world champion, she runs her personal best, like 222, six fastest of all time for US women. But what was, <laughs> what really captured everybody's amazement was how she was just passing people like crazy at the end with mm-hmm. this unbelievable kick, including in the last mile passing uh, Ruth Chep, I don't know how you say her last name, Chepnagich. Yeah, Chepnagich. Um, she's 26. She was the 2019 world champion, uh, owner of the fourth fastest marathon time ever. And it was this redemptive moment because Sarah had to drop out of the Olympic trials. And, you know, she's in the later stages of her She's 37, career. right? Yeah, it's like yeah. she's 37 years old. Not only that, she adopted her and Ryan, her, her husband, Ryan Hall, uh, legendary marathoner, adopted four girls, sisters from Ethiopia. So oh, she's like this that. mom to these four girls. I know she was a mom of four. We're all running really... now too. I think the older one of them at least is like doing really well in running. Um, it's just a beautiful story. And to have Ryan, you know, her husband um, as her coach, there's Ryan shared some footage of him like, like screaming at her like the last mile when she's running by, he's like losing his mind. That's <laughs> really cool. 
And on a fitness tip, have you seen what Ryan Hall looks like these no, days? No. So you probably have an image of your mind of him winning like the New York marathon, right. like typical marathoner build, like super skinny, yeah. tall guy. When he retired from running, he just went into the gym like a beast. And now he's just gargantuan. Really? It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, he put on, it took him two years, but he is an absolute monster now. It's he's, unbelievable. He's rich roll in two years. He like doesn't run really at all. I think he was gonna, I think I saw Sarah sharing something about how he was gonna run an ultra marathon, like a 50 miler on no training. Oh, wow. I don't know whether he did that or not. I should look into that. But anyway, he's just built like a Mack truck now. It's it's kind of amazing. That is amazing. I didn't know um, that. But hats off to Sarah. What an incredible performance to run that fast late in your career while juggling everything that you're doing in the midst of a pandemic while being a mom, like all of that. It's just such incredible. a incredible cool story. Really hats off. And then the, my win of the week is uh, David Goggins. How could it not be? How could it not be? He finished second at the Moab 240, running what he thinks is the race of his life uh, so far. Um, and this is a guy who's done very well and, and won some big ultra races. 197 entrants in this uh, Moab 240. And for the backstory on this, there's a couple things. One is he did he ran this race last year and was in second place, I think, or in the top three and went off course. Mm -hmm. There was like a sign misplacement or something or some sort of like controversy there. And he went off course like by 10 miles or something. I think it was even more than that. Was it more than that? Yeah. So he had to run back and then... Um, Coming up to the the biggest peak on it, he started having fluid in his lungs, like having some altitude problems. Right, it was like a pulmonary edema. And they basically forced him to go like, well, they didn't force him, but like the, I think the doctors were like, maybe you gotta get down to altitude. And so he left the race, went to his hotel room and started feeling better and then went back out on the course by right. himself. And they didn't let him finish at the finish line, but he finished like, cause right now there's still only five runners that have finished and you can finish like tomorrow, I think. It's, it's some, I forget exactly. Yeah. And so there's, most people are still not, not even in yet. And uh, there's several DNFs already, but uh, so that was one backstory. So he's coming back this year, but this year at some point he's going to reveal how fucked up his knees were. He's kind of hinted at it. He's shown some therapy stuff. He's shown himself on uh, in doctor's offices. He just this week before the race showed himself having his knee drained where it said mm -hmm. half a baseball's worth of fluid was coming out of one of his knees. But when he finally reveals this story in its fullest and and how how fucked up his knees are, that's what makes this to me one of the most amazing uh, athletic accomplishments I've ever heard of. Like, <laughs> like that, and you will agree with me yeah. when you finally, when he finally tells the story. I agree full, with you now. Because the guy he lost to and lost, I mean, he finished 10 miles. I think he finished a couple of hours behind this guy. I forget exactly, but let me tell you what, I, this guy, this guy is like set the record for running across the Atacama Desert. He set the record for this, uh, Mich Michelle Gradlia, the Italian, mm -hmm. Uh, set the record for running across the Gobi. He wins, all, he's won bad water. He wins almost every ultra race he, he enters. And David was gaining on him at right. the end. The guy had like a pretty good gap on him though. I mean, like, 10, like it was 12 like- miles, it was, 10 mile gap. I checked maybe when yeah. they had like 40 miles to go and it, I thought it was, all, uh, he had like 20 miles on him. Yeah, but he only finished like eight miles ahead. Wow. Yeah, like that's what I'm saying. So he was gaining. So on. yeah, that guy had, he had a, a pretty solid lead that David was gaining on. And then there was David, and then there was a huge gap. Yeah. And then it was a cluster. So yeah. it was like, basically those two guys were way out ahead of everybody else. Yeah. 
And then there was kind of a pack yeah, yeah, behind yeah. those guys that were pretty closely packed together. Like three guys together, yeah. But yeah, yeah. let's count the ways that this guy is a savage. Yeah. Because like, I don't know if we even have time. I mean, it's <laughs> it's crazy because what happened to him last year mm-hmm. was like the most epic story ever. And I remember when he rejoined the course and he's running along and he did a little Instagram video. I was like, you don't quit. If I sign up for something, I don't stop. You know, just yeah. because the race is over doesn't mean that I finish and I finish what I started or, you know, whatever he but said. He was but he was saying like, like so... he had so much respect for the slower runners that were still out there suffering uh-huh. and he wanted to be out there with them. That's what his point was, you know, like- in But that they'd time. all finished by the time he went back no, to the course. No, there were still people out there. That's why he went back out there. Oh, I didn't know He's that. He's like, there's some people out there in, still grinding. He, he was in the hospital for how long? Just for like a few hours. Then oh, he went I thought back he was like the, overnight. No, 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 no. Then mm. he went to the ho- to the hotel room. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So this year, when did he have knee surgery? I don't think he had knee surgery. Oh, I just remember a video maybe a couple months ago where his knee was like the size of a watermelon. Yeah, never had knee surgery. It. He, he, he dealt with therapy and he kind of did 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 some uh-huh. stuff and he put some of that on Instagram. But I'm not gonna get into what, I, what I've seen in terms of like the medical on him, the report on have, him. You got the inside But track. I'm not gonna get into it, <laughs> okay. it's not me to say, but it's, um, but trust me, when you hear the whole story, uh, even Gralia will be like the guy that will be like, what the fuck, Hawkins? Right. What the fuck? The other thing that's so prototypically Goggins about it yeah. is that any other athlete who has like a profile on social media would have been sharing the lead up to this race. Like I'm getting ready to do this race. Here's my strategy. This is what my training looks like. None of that, hmm. not a peep. Nobody even knew that he was doing this race, at least publicly facing, Mm. right? So suddenly it was like, oh, Goggins is in Moab and he's in second place. Like, wait, what? Like he didn't announce that he was doing, because he doesn't do that. Because his thing is, that's for me. Like I'll do these little videos once in a while because you know I have to, even though I hate social media and I'll like put you on blast with some crazy inspirational message. But I- it's not incumbent upon me to share anything else I don't no. feel like sharing. And I do this racing and this training for myself. That's right. It's the same thing with his fire training. You know, he doesn't put that on his social mm-hmm. media either. He does that for himself. But then there's always a message. There's always something that he can use to inspire people out of it, whether it's through uh, a talk or an Instagram right. post or uh, you know the book. Um, and another thing that was prototypical to Goggins is when he crossed the finish line, he banged out like, I don't know how many, like 20 push-ups or more <laughs> and just banged them out <laughs> right. right when he crossed the finish line. Like most people, 240 Is there a video miles. of that? Yeah, there's video. It's on his, it's on oh, his it Instagram. Is. I haven't seen yeah, it yet. That, yeah. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Well, good for you, David. Yeah, that's impressive. Man. It's unbelievable. And uh, the world, the, you know, the world needs that story. Yeah, so for sure. Thank you for that. Yeah, and then that's the kind of stuff like, you know, that's why he's people connect to him and his legend. It's like, because he's the proof that we can push through our own smaller mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's intense, man. I love it. All right, let's do some uh, listener questions. Do it. Okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. Hi, Rich. Hi, Adam. My name is Cameron. I live in the beautiful Oahu, Hawaii, and I'm probably one of your younger listeners. I'm 22 years old and I have become immersed in the world of health and wellness. I've come a long way on my betterment journey, but one habit I can't seem to shake is overdoing it with alcohol. I've tried cutting it out completely, but then I end up feeling isolated from my peers. I've tried having a limit on how many drinks I will have, but often end up disrespecting that boundary. 
and then feeling anxious and shameful for it. I haven't given up alcohol completely because I enjoy having one or two drinks, and I use drinking as a means to network and socialize. Do you think it's possible to set healthy boundaries with alcohol and stick to them, or do you think it's safer to just stop drinking altogether considering this relationship I have with it? Seeing of being a sober 22-year-old is quite daunting to me, and the more habits I change, the further I feel from relating to the people around me. As someone I look to for health and personal growth wisdom, as well as being a recovered alcoholic, I would love to hear your advice on possible ways I can resolve this. Thanks, guys. I hope I hear this on the air. Thank you, Cameron. How cool would it be to be 22 and living in Oahu, first of all? (laughs) I want to be 48 and living in Oahu. I know. (laughs) It sounds good, and it sounds like you've got a cool life. and thank you for the question. I mean, the, the first thing I would say to you is, to your specific question, is it possible to set healthy boundaries around alcohol and stick to them? Only you can answer that question. Um, baked into what I just heard, it sounds like you've tried to do that and have failed. So I would um, encourage you to kind of think about that. Uh, alcoholism is a self-diagnosed disease, and I can't say whether you're an alcoholic or not, only you can make that judgment call for yourself. But to the extent that your alcohol use is starting to interfere with your well-being, which it sounds like it is, I think it's worth uh, spending a little time looking into that, particularly as somebody who's immersed and interested in the world of health and wellness. If you're interested in those things, I'm not sure what role alcohol plays in furthering whatever goals that you set for yourself. Uh, in my opinion, it's only going to be an impediment. And I think these experiments like, hey, let me go out and cap my drinks. Maybe uh, you know, I'm gonna go out and see if I can be with my friends and only have two drinks, or maybe I'll only drink beer, or I'll only go out on these nights. These are all uh, <laughs> you know, experiments that, that I've played around with myself only to find out that they never work. Um, maybe they'll work for you, I don't know. But it sounds like your relationship with alcohol is making you unhappy and it's moving you further away from what it is that you most aspire to. So my suggestion to you is to, why not try to go sober for 30 days? It sounds like you've done that in the past. You've had stints where you've given it up completely Um, but that's impaired your ability to network and socialize with your friends. So what is that about? Why is it that you feel like you can't go out and network or socialize unless you're drinking? Is it because it makes you uncomfortable? Is it because it's no longer fun? And I think that's where the work is. Invest in what it is that is leading you to be uncomfortable around that specific dynamic. And I think that will be um, a means of, of connecting with what exactly alcohol is doing for you and is not doing for you. You know, on top of that, like how can you be in health and wellness if you can't control your drinking? That's that's like the hard truth here. And I think it's it, you know, this might come across as daunting and scary, the idea of giving up alcohol, but in truth, you won't know unless you try. And I think if you just try to do it one day at a time, like they say in in 12 step. Um, and not worry about whether you're ever going to drink again, you might find yourself uh, enjoying it in a way that um, you haven't previously. But I think you know when you give up alcohol completely and then you find yourself isolating, 
Um, that's because alcohol is your salve. That alcohol is the, the grease that allows you to interact socially. And when you remove that, you're lacking in the tools to be able to do that sober. And the kind of um, idea behind recovery is developing your emotional aptitude and your social skills so that you're not reliant upon a substance in order to kind of gracefully, you know, navigate your your friends and these social situations. So again, it's not for me to tell you what you should or shouldn't do. It's not for me to diagnose you, but it sounds like if you're thinking about this, that perhaps it's a problem because people who have a healthy relationship with alcohol are not the people that that leave voicemails like this, right? So clearly there's something about this that is unhealthy or dysfunctional for you. And I can only speak for from my own experience, which is when I stop playing these games about, well, maybe I'll have two drinks or maybe I'll do it at this, you know, these nights, but not these other nights, when I just let go of all of that and accepted help and started to, you know, um, live sober, that's when my life improved and got better in, unimaginable ways. And I just want everybody to have their version of the experience that I had. So I would encourage you to explore 12 step in your area. Uh, I don't know what it's like in Hawaii, but I think if you're in Hawaii, they're kind of functioning normally because they've kept the island pretty protected from COVID. So I suspect there are probably Alcoholics Anonymous meetings that are in person. And perhaps you can uh, go on the internet, find out where those are and attend. Set aside your preconceived ideas about what it might or might not be and just show up with an open mind. Listen, try to find somebody that you can talk to. Uh, try to look for the similarities rather than differences. Um, and if you can find that person to talk to, uh, sit down with that person, tell them the truth of what you're really going through. And I think that will be revealing in what you wanna do going forward. Beautiful, well said. Thanks, Cameron. Did I miss anything? DK is here. DK, DK could have dropped a better sober bomb than that. No, I think it was perfect. Yeah. I think it's normal for a 22 year old to feel that. Right. Yeah. Cause you're probably used to running with a bunch of people that drink. Right, right. Cause most 22 year olds right. yeah, drink. Exactly. But I, I would say that, uh, you know, be careful. Sometimes, like, uh, it's, it's every, the people who we're closest to are mirrors, right? That's what the yogis like to say. And so you might getting, think you're getting a reflection. You might be thinking you're getting some, like, you, want, you need to connect with this person. And the only way to do that is to be on their level. But that might just be a story you're telling yourself. You might be able to go out and hang out and be completely welcome and connected with people without drinking. Well, you can. Yeah. You can. But with your group of friends, I mean. Yeah. It might not yeah, isolate yeah, you yeah. from your friends like you think. Yeah. It might not be as isolating as you think. Probably won't be. But you know, you have to experiment with that. Mm -hmm. Like 30 day experiment seems like a good way to go. Why not? Yeah. All right. Let's go to the next one. This is a related question and you'll see. Hi, Rich. Hi, Adam. Um, my name's John. I'm from London, England. I am um, seven years sober. Um, I'm also five years plant-based, and Rich has been a real inspiration for me. As somebody who I guess is a type A male, it's, it's rare to find role models in sobriety and in plant-based eating. So thank you so much. Um, my question is around sobriety. Um, Rich, I've listened to your story, and I've read your book twice. Um, and one thing that I, I'm not sure you go into is, is how uh, your social relationships 
suffered when you became sober. Um, that's a challenge I've had ever since I became sober, and I'm still wrestling with it now. I'll often go, I'll often find myself not invited to gatherings with, with really close friends. Um, some of my friends see me suitable maybe for a country walk, but not a bachelor party or um, any other gathering, really. And, you know, it, it can be quite hurtful. Um, it does knock me back a bit. And, you know, I see it time and time again. I get judged as a non-drinker and, and not included. And I'm just wondering, Rich, if you've had any experience in your story uh, of that and, and how have you dealt with it and I'd be really um, grateful for any response you have thanks both for a, a wonderful show um, take care bye thanks John uh, it's a great question I definitely have had similar experiences although I think there is a little bit of a difference with you being from London because culturally uh, it's distinct in that um, you know London tends to be a very drinking centric culture in general. So I suspect that the challenges might be a little bit more intense where you live than where I live. Uh, the first thing I would say is that that disinclusion, the idea that you have these, you know, quote unquote, really close friends. First of all, I would, I would wonder how, how close are they really if they're disinviting you or not inviting you to do fun stuff? Are they really your close friends? Maybe they are, and maybe they feel like they're sparing you from putting you in an uncomfortable situation. But either way, that lack of invitation or, or disinclusion says more about them than it does about you. And often, and I've experienced this, um, it's worth considering that you act as a mirror to their own behavior. So if you're sober and you're at a bachelor party and you've got these friends and they're letting loose and they're going crazy, you being sober in their orbit is a is is perhaps um, an indication that they might have a problem that they don't want to look at. So when they see you, they're reminded of their relationship with alcohol and the extent to which it might be um, unhealthy for them. So that's one thing to consider, and it it helps with you know empathizing from where they're coming from. I think on some level, in my own personal case. I just made a ton of new friends. Like I needed to uh, develop a brand new community of people who were living more in alignment with this new value system that I was developing. Uh, and so I would encourage you to do just that. It sounds like you've been sober for a while, but that you know you you feel cut off or lonely from your friends. So perhaps try to find a way to tap into a different community, whether it's through 12-step or even Andy Ramage's one-year no beer uh, community, which is London-centric. I would encourage you to reach out to Andy or to figure out how you can participate in that movement because that is just packed with people who are experiencing life alcohol-free. Mm -hmm. uh, and then to find new activities and new things to do. I mean, personally for me, when I got sober initially, I didn't wanna to go to a bachelor party because that was scary and I thought I might drink. Today, I have no interest in going to a bachelor party because it's just not something, you know, like that kind of behavior and activity is just not something I wanna be around. They're very douchey, these bachelor so, parties. Yeah. Hi, hi on so, the douche meter. I don't go to bars, not because I'm scared if I go to a bar, I'm gonna drink, but going to a bar when you're sober just isn't that fun. and. What you learn over time, and I suspect you already know this, is that what is meaningful is having 
meaningful interactions with those friends that you care about. And when there's a lot of booze around, those interactions are, are very surface level at mm. best and not meaningful. So maybe um, shoulder the responsibility of inviting your friends to do things with you that interest you that don't involve alcohol rather than waiting for them to invite you to do other stuff or developing a resentment around not being invited to do something. Um, and doing an inventory around that resentment, I think would be super helpful. Uh, you know, work, work a program around these uh, emotions that you're having around the relationships with these friends. I like it. I think, you know, having uh, spent quite a lot of time in London and seeing how alcohol is really like ingrained in the culture there, I think there's an element, like we talked about Goggins earlier, of the only. You're, you're kind of, it's it's a little different than being sober here in Southern California. You do feel Everybody like- Everybody goes to bed at 10. Yeah, and yeah. They're and up like, for their mountain bike ride. Exactly. Like you're, you really are kind of the only. And Goggins has embraced that, being the only. He talked about being in the, in, in his book- talks about being in the seals um, and the seals are, are like tr train hard and then party hard. And like when they were based in Thailand and he would go to the, he didn't want to go to party. He wanted to study and then get up and, and beat their ass in whatever training they were doing the next day. And it rubbed some people wrong and he was disinvited or was suspect. And it, it impacted his, he suspects impacted his, which he writes about impacted his, um, his, you know, advancement to some of the teams. So, uh, you know, but he embraced being the only, and that's what he had to do uh, for his own uh, kind of well-being. But also, it's how he kind of excelled. He he embraced it, right? Uh, but but he's a very unique individual, yeah. and and you know, he had to accept some level of loneliness that he's comfortable with. Yeah. And what I'm gathering from John is that he doesn't want to. He wants to be connected yes. to his friend. Yes, you know, yes, this is yes. different. This is qualitatively different in that regard. Yeah. I just think there's a way to do it that can be accomplished without the kind of stigma of alcohol kind of hovering over the dynamic itself. No, no question. And so if these friends are really good friends of yours, they're gonna be more than happy to connect with you in a meaningful way in an environment that doesn't involve alcohol, whether that's a dinner party at your house or some athletic activity or some other thing that you can mutually enjoy with this person. And if they're not interested in that, then I think it's you know worth considering just how good a friend this person really is. Yeah, and again, it all goes back to working your inventory around this. Why are you resentful? What is your part in this? How are you contributing to this? And how can you change the dynamic with certain things that you can do in terms of your perspective of these friends and the activities that you can, or the actions that you can undertake to, you know, mend what appears to be, you know, fractures in these relationships. Yeah, and like any tough thing could end up being a benefit to you, however it plays out. Mm -hmm. You know, going through the hard thing can become what helps you become, uh, get you to an even better yeah. place. And also, why don't you call them up and tell them how you feel Yeah, and have that conversation because maybe they're not even aware of how this is impacting you. And if they are good friends, they'll be able to hear that. Beautiful. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Let's go to Colorado. Hi, Adam and Rich. My name's Greg Johnston. I'm from Colorado. Um, I've already adopted a plant-based uh, nutrition plan. I eat all plants all the time, as much whole food as I can. I'm losing a ton of weight. 
got my blood work back. Everything's good. My blood pressure is down in the great numbers. Not on any meds. Just take my B12 supplement. My question is, I'm 52. I've read, you know, Finding Ultra. Um, I've become a great fan of the Ritual podcast. I watched, uh, you know, the world's toughest race, the, you know, Bear Grylls. And I live in Colorado. This is the perfect place to start doing some adventure sports, some endurance sports. What do you see as the way to break into this for somebody who's 50 plus, you know, former college athlete, but really let himself get out of shape and is now getting back into shape? I would just love to hear some ideas of how you would take it if you were there. Have a great day, guys, and thanks uh, for all you do on the podcast. It, uh, it's really been helping me a lot. Thank you, Greg. Great question. The first thing I would say is I can't shake this sense that you're waiting for somebody to give you permission to do this thing. And the truth is you don't need permission. You already have everything that you require in order to go outside and begin this process of moving towards this goal or this dream you have of doing adventure sports or endurance sports. So maybe look at what's behind that. Like, why do you feel like you can't start until somebody says it's okay or provides a roadmap for you to do so? The truth is it's in the doing that the path is revealed. So you have to just begin. So whatever pair of shoes you happen to have in your closet, pull those out, go outside and go for a jog. And if you can't jog, start with a walk and then show up the next day and try to walk a little bit longer. And one day you'll find yourself jogging a little bit and just slowly over time, expand that. And if you're patient and you're consistent, I think the answers that you seek will start to unfurl before you. You don't have to have this whole plan completely conceptualized before you start. And in truth, that's the wrong way to think about it and to go about it to begin with. Um, I think it's great to set a goal for yourself. If you're like, I wanna one day do this crazy race, so I'm gonna start with a 10K or whatever it is to put something on the calendar that holds you accountable. Maybe you can find a friend to do this with. So you have an accountability partner to make sure that you get up out of bed in the morning and get after it. But ultimately, this is about falling in love with a lifestyle shift um, that's gonna lead you over time into a, a, a very different place. What that looks like for you is gonna be different than what it might look like for me or for Adam or for somebody else, but find something that you really enjoy. Fall in love with the process and the lifestyle and everything else ends up taking care of itself, whether it's gear, whether it's which race to do, whether it's you know what GPS watch to buy or what race to sign up for, all of those questions get answered. But if you're stuck in the starting gate, trying to figure it out in your head, you're never gonna get to first base. Yeah, just go for a run. Just go for That's a, it. a hike. This is yeah. not rocket science. No, just hit um, the trails. And there is no secret. Well, I like the idea of being in Colorado. You can just like, look, where where's the beautiful place you haven't walked yet or run yet and go check it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, turn it into a fun adventure. Congratulations on the lifestyle change. That's, yeah. that, those are some really important big markers. I think the other thing that might be worth commenting on is it's interesting that you open the question saying you're 52. And from that, I infer that there's some sense that maybe 
the ship has sailed or it's too late or you're too old to do that. And let me disabuse you of that notion. As somebody who's turning 54 in a week, yeah. uh, 52 is not a barrier to this. In fact, I'm jealous of you being at the beginning of what could quite possibly be the most enriching uh, experience of your life if you lean into it. So uh, get out of your comfort zone, put the fear aside, put one foot in front of the other and start with tiny steps. Make it about the atomic habits that you build that you build over time. That way it's not daunting. You know, you, you're, you're, you're eating little bites every single day. And with that, you build momentum. And these things then develop their own momentum and they be, they 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 become a it it has a life of its own that will you know put wind in your sails and and guide you where you're supposed to go absolutely and i do understand though being in colorado seeing those incredible i mean being, i get i get it like if if being 52 seems like a problem when you're in colorado surrounded by endurance athletes that are just that's whizzing true. by yeah and, that's and true that, it is, yeah cuz everybody's crazy fit yeah, and, yeah 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 and they all look like they're you know, lining up for the Kona World Championships like every single day at the coffee shop. Exactly. I, I, I get it. I get it. Forget but, about that. Yeah. It has nothing to do with that. No. This yeah, is about you. your relationship with yourself and the person that you want to become. Boom. All right. Rich. Let's that's wrap some it good up. shit right there. Dropping wisdom. How do you feel? Me? Yeah. I feel great. I feel like this is a good place to vent my concerns for the well being of humanity. <laughs> and uh, in a safe space. You do. I'm, I'm glad to provide that venue for you so you can go home. I can go and home. Be the best husband and dad and swim run aficionado that you can. You know what? I appreciate that about you. Right on, right on, right on. <laughs> Just getting in the McConaughey get headspace for tomorrow. I can't wait to hear about it. Cool. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, Follow Adam at Adam Skolnick on all the socials. If you'd like your message considered, leave us a voicemail at 424-235-4626. You can find me at Rich Roll pretty much everywhere. Please take a moment to hit that subscribe button on YouTube, Apple, or Spotify. Check the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. We'll put links up to everything that we discussed today as always. And that's it. I think we did it today. I wanna thank everybody who helped put on today's show. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing today's show. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers and Davey Greenberg for portraits. Georgia Whaley for copywriting. DK, my man, David Kahn for advertiser relationships. DK. Theme music, as always, by Tyler, Trapper, and Harry. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for the love. See you back here in a couple of days with another amazing episode, TBD. Who knows what it's gonna be? <laughs> who knows? Who knows what the world is going to look like? We'll still be here in a couple of days. It'll still be. Well, that's the funny thing with yeah. this show. We always yeah. think we're going to talk about something, and then the world spins off its axis, and it seems no longer relevant. It's gonna. It's you know what? It's gonna cycle back to normal. It is going to at some stage. All right, Nostradamus. We're gonna get there. All right, together. Peace. Planets. Namaste. Yeah.